The following podcast contains general advice only and does not take into account your individual circumstances. Listeners should speak to an accountant or financial advisor before making any investment decision. All right, what is up, everyone? Hope you're having a lovely weekend or perhaps weekday, depending on when you listen to this. My name is Dion, and this is the Market Pulse podcast, episode eight, The Authority is Total. Thank you for tuning in this week. If you have a question for the show, as always, please feel free to email me. You can do that at marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com. I love questions, so please don't hesitate there. I also have a Twitter handle if that's easier. So that's at marketpulsepod, P-O-D on the end. I did receive a couple of new reviews and star ratings this week on Apple Podcasts. So thank you very much for whoever you are out there. If you do have Apple Podcasts, please drop a review. It is very much appreciated. Let's kick it off and look at the market's performance for this week. So the ASX 200 was up again this week in the green. So it was up 1.86%. Over in the US, they had a slightly better week. So the S&P 500 was up 3.04% and the NASDAQ was up 6.09%. So another shortened week for investors as we come off the back of the Easter weekend, so we had four days of trading or four days that the market was open this week and another positive week for the markets, at least in terms of index performance. I pulled this sentence from the Wall Street Journal. It's a quote here, it says, the Dow Jones Industrial Average staged its best two weeks performance since the 1930s, a dramatic rebound that has left many investors with a confounding reality, soaring share prices and a floundering economy. That's a little bit about how I think about that too. I thought it might be best to zoom out and and look at the context of where markets are at right now, but in terms of the beginning of the year, because it's it's been a choppy few weeks. You know, the ASX 200 is down 18% so far this year. You know, at its worst, it was down about 32, 33% uh, since the start of the year, but over the last couple of weeks, especially, it's it's fought back and regained a little bit of that. In the US, the S&P 500 is down 11% this year so far, and it's pretty similar to our market in that at its worst, it was down around the 31% mark for the year. Interesting enough, the NASDAQ 100, which is the technology heavy index that I usually talk about as well at the top of the show, it's now up slightly 1.14% year to date which is kind of crazy. So maybe if you're invested over in the NASDAQ, you might be looking around saying, what coronavirus? You know, some of the key leading companies in the US, especially in terms of the NASDAQ index and what's pushing that NASDAQ index to actually be slightly up for the year so far is, I've highlighted a couple here. So Netflix is one that's that's up around 28% this year. You know, what will be interesting to watch is Netflix actually report their first quarter earnings this coming Tuesday this week which will be Wednesday for, for us in Australia. So that'll be Tuesday in, in America. And I suppose, you know, a lot of the optimism around Netflix right now is that their company is likely benefiting from the idea that people are much more likely to be hunkered at home watching Stranger Things than they are to be out and about uh, living their life. Yeah, maybe it also has something to do with how popular Tiger King has been uh, since it launched on Netflix and the other big one is is Amazon. Their share prices surged in April, and you know Amazon's more than just the online marketplace of goods. 
that you know you can buy from and they'll get delivered to your door they, they also in in the states they own whole foods which is a, a groceries supermarket chain and then you think of all the the little things that that amazon does which is stuff like prime video so they're they're equivalent to, to netflix i suppose they have prime music and they even have audible they own that which is for audiobooks and these are all things that again we we tend to do when we're we're locked at home and trying to entertain ourselves and basically the online marketplace so amazon as as we know it that's just experiencing huge amounts of orders they've they've had to hire more staff just to to keep up on the logistics side of things the figure that was in the guardian this week is that customers are spending $11,000 a second on Amazon during the coronavirus lockdown. And speaking of coronavirus, better check on exactly what where that's at in the world right now. And as I'm recording this, so on the 19th of April, there are 2.31 million cases, 160,000 deaths worldwide. And I pulled this up, which is talking about how Australia has 257 cases per 1 million population. And in comparison, the UK has 1,600 cases per 1 million and the US has 2,146 cases per 1 million. And of course, I have been following the number of Americans applying for unemployment benefits or new applications for unemployment benefits over the last several weeks. And if you've been listening to the podcast, you, you would have heard me speak about this. And it's something I've been watching with fascination because it, you know, it's definitely an indicator of what their economy is doing right now, of course. And if you if you haven't already Googled it, so if you type into Google like you know American unemployment claims or something like that, you'll be able to come across the the graph and just the way it shoots up. And it's you know it's never done anything like this before. There's never been you know millions of people in a single week applying for unemployment benefits. You know, the number of new people applying for unemployment benefits in the US this week came in at 5.2 million. So crazy. And that brings the total of these figures over the past few weeks to about 22 million. So staggering numbers. In Australia, our treasury have actually come out this week and said that unemployment in Australia will soar to around 10% over the next few months under, under their expectations and their models. And that's from about 5.1% in February. So a doubling of the unemployment rate. And they also said that if the government's JobKeeper subsidy didn't exist, so if we just deleted that, then the uh, actual unemployment rate would be closer to around 15%. So it would go quite, quite a fair bit higher. And keeping that unemployment rate down is definitely a very high priority for the government. Remember, Australia is a world record holder for sometimes wrong reasons so one of those wrong reasons is that we have one of the highest household debt to income ratios in the developed world so a very concerning statistic when you're talking about people becoming unemployed and i want to clarify or add on to a point i made last week which was about the seemingly optimistic view that the markets seem to be taking right now in regards to the pandemic i said that australia i said that it's likely that in australia this reaction from the market is because the virus seems to have been, I guess, better contained and our response from a health point of view has has been stronger than, say, other examples or other countries out there. And I'll add to that and just say that it's also the case that the market is watching stimulus policy from the government and I guess for want of a better word, it's making bets on how this will play out for our economy. Remember, the market is, is forward-looking, right? So it's always taking the information that it knows right now and trying to extrapolate that into the future. 
And so in this case, my, I guess my conclusion is that, that the market's banking on some short-term pain and, and a very quick rebound. So pain, yes, but, but only for a very little bit before we return to some sense of normality. And I've already told you this on previous episodes that for me personally, I, I fail to share that same level of optimism. I'm not, I'm not really convinced of a miraculous V-shaped rebound into the second half of this year. However, I will also add that I'm just one person and I don't know everything in the world and I could be completely wrong. So, and I hope I am wrong. And if I am, I'll acknowledge that on a future episode. We'll call it the Dion was wrong party episode and um, we'll be in a much better spot. Yeah, my focus is looking at what public health experts say, epidemiologists say, and one interesting piece I saw, which was highlighted in the BBC this week, was an interview with Devi Sridhar, who chairs global public health at the University of Edinburgh. She highlighted that it's very, very unrealistic to think that the Tokyo Olympics, which has already been postponed to 2021, that that will still even take place in 2021 and unless there is a coronavirus vaccine. So she acknowledges that obviously if we get a vaccine, then it becomes a bit more likely, but even then it might not exist, at least in the in the way that we've seen other Olympics in the past. And that's the big ticket item that everyone is looking for, the, the vaccine and when and how quickly we can get a vaccine rolled out. The most common time frame you hear from health experts, so you know, just our chief medical officer, you see Dr. Norman Swan on the ABC as well. They, they say 12 to 18 months. And I know that there are more optimistic timeframes and that, and that it could come a little bit quicker, perhaps due to the sheer amount of money and energy being thrown at this. But I guess for now, we wait and see. In international governance terms, it was quite a strange week. So on one hand, you had Boris Johnson's deputy, Dominic Raab, who's obviously stepped in whilst Boris is recovering. He's announced that the UK coronavirus lockdown measures will be extended for another three weeks, at, at least at this stage. Their death toll is quite high, so they got uh, 13,729 when I last looked at the data, I think, which was yesterday. And yeah, On the other side, Trump has announced a roadmap and guidelines in the US to basically bring the states out of lockdown and back towards normal life or opening America back up, as he put it. Yeah, this comes also as individual state governors basically opted to extend the lockdowns in America. And there's been states that have actually formed like packs with their neighboring states so that they could all agree to the same thing um, and, and truly lock it down to stop people from you know crossing borders and all that kind of stuff. You're seeing this in, in mostly the really badly affected US states. So New York, of course, New Jersey, Massachusetts, uh, Louisiana, etc. But if you're in Florida, the WWE are an essential service. <laughs> so I don't know, it just depends on where you are, I suppose. There's a concern you know, among health leaders that if you do move too fast, and this has been especially talked about over the last couple of weeks, so if you do move too fast to open up, you could you know, potentially reignite the virus or you'd be hit with that second wave that you hear about with, with problems like this, you know, especially if there's not you know, the scaffolding in place for, you know, testing and contract tracing that you would need to efficiently open back up. You know, and the other thing that this relates to my feelings, I guess, on the market's optimism over the last couple of weeks and partly why it doesn't really sit well with me is that even if you did magically flick the switch on tomorrow and everything went back to normal, and when I say normal, I mean that 
you know, COVID-19 still exists, but we, we start to, and we still have our cases is what I'm saying, but we start to open back up, you know, so we, so we open the gyms back up and we allow people to go to cafes and restaurants and go to the cinema and all that, all that kind of stuff. So that returns to normal. Even if you do do that, doesn't mean people will engage in that, if that makes sense. So you can encourage, you know, you encourage people to get spending and reboot the economy, but it's up to consumers at the end of the day to believe that it's safe for them to go do that and believe that the risk is minimal or, or, or small enough to, to go and justify doing those activities. You know, in the same way that we might perceive the risk of getting in a car accident on the way to the shops as fairly minimal enough that we, we go to the shops every week. You know, for example, in Sweden, they are not doing lockdowns in the same way that we are. There, there is some lockdowns, but not, not nearly as much as us. And one example is they still have cinemas open. Not all cinemas, but they do have some cinemas open. But attendance has just fallen through the floor completely because even if you're just like, oh, the cinemas are open, guys, please come along and help the economy. You know, people are just going to be like, no way. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, that seems like an unnecessary risk right now. But this week, I'm also going to touch on property and the travel sector as well. So let's start with property. You know, I thought I'd touch on our domestic property market and it's a very interesting time for real estate, isn't it? Our social distancing measures mean that we can't exactly go and attend auctions right now, of course. I'm not a huge property guy and what I mean by that is I'm not super knowledgeable. I'll be the very first one to admit that about this. I don't even own a property myself. I'm a classic latte sipping millennial, so I don't even know why I'm speaking about this this topic. But uh, I guess I was thinking about it a little bit this week and I was thinking about how it's going to play out for our property market and you know, I saw some data. I know UBS basically came out and announced that they expect a 10% fall in property prices over the coming year. And CBA have also come out and said that they, their original expectation, you know, before the coronavirus was they expected a, a 6%-ish rise in the property market in Australia in 2020. And that's been revised to actually a 10% drop in the first six months. So big changes. And so obviously with a, with a fall in property prices, it's going to come from things like, you know, social distancing measures, meaning no auctions, you know, there's people out of work, so higher unemployment. So, you know, you can't get a loan, of course, and people just generally less inclined to take out huge loans right now, especially if there's, you know, lack of uh, consumer confidence, you know, lack of, I guess, confidence in the, in the economy and, and just generally a feeling of uncertainty. But there was this point that I was reading and listening to this week, which is about migration. So I listened to the Money Cafe podcast, which has Alan Kohler on it, and he had a guest on Gerard Manak, and they hit on this topic of migration, and it's not something I actually considered thinking about property. And they highlighted that, you know, the struggle that landlords will face is that, you know, migration actually accounts for by far the, the majority of our overall population growth. And, you know, we, we at the moment, or at least pre-coronavirus you know you have millions of people here in Australia that are on temporary visas and you know with this current pandemic those people might be going back home and as Gerard on the the podcast on the Money Cafe podcast pointed out that they they might not even come back either so you know right now migration is on pause and and that's concerning in terms of its 
input to actual overall population growth. And we don't know when that's going to open back up. Um, I'm sure it will when when we get to a point that it's safe to do so. Uh, I'm sure it'll definitely open back up. But at the moment, that's just we don't know when that is. And the, the point was actually also driven home. There was an article in the AFR by uh, Nick Lenigan, which was titled The Double Whammy About to Hit Property. And he also touched on this exact issue. So, you know, d- demand can fall due to less migration and even non-migrants actually being less inclined to buy houses or, or build. And that'll cause, you know, falls in property prices. But on the supply side, you also see developers less likely to undertake say new projects because they're worried about lack of demand and and falling prices so it kind of becomes a vicious cycle and on the on the migrant or the immigration side of things you know that's that's very much likely to affect landlords in Australia so so I guess the mum and dads so to speak property investors who have an investment property and and rent it out that's that's likely to hit them the hardest anyway I found it very interesting and I just I guess the migration problem was not something I'd considered before and it's not something that might quickly correct itself either as it depends on how this COVID-19 plays out. And, you know, I obviously doubt we relax migration anytime soon, at least especially before other parts of society are opened up. But let's talk about travel. Uh, this week's edition of the travel sector is completely imploded, of course. And we're going to check out both airlines and cruises. But I want to talk about Virgin uh, first because they've been in the news and uh, and then in the last couple of days, they were offered a $200 million lifeline from the Queensland government. And remember, this comes off the back of the figure that Virgin actually asked for from the federal government was $1.4 billion to, to sort of get them through this period. So obviously, the $200 million from the Queensland government wouldn't actually be enough money to save the airline. But I guess I mean, when I read into it, the Queensland government did acknowledge that and, and said that this would be part of, you know, a backing from the federal government as well to to actually save the airline and and queensland has a bit more incentive than other states to do this uh, just from a employment point of view because their national office virgin's national office is actually located in brisbane it's important to note that if this did happen either from state or federal or you know a mixed level it's highly likely that the loan that they give virgin will be in the form of you know what's known as a convertible note so that means the loan will actually convert into actual equity into the airline. So that kind of means that the Queensland government or the federal government ends up with a stake in the airline themselves, which you know seems to be quite a reasonable way to deal with it considering you're spending taxpayer money you know, as opposed to just throwing them free cash. You know, Alan Joyce, who is the CEO of Qantas, he's been very much on the offensive over the, the last few weeks telling the government not to actually bail out Virgin obviously and he's been arguing that you know because it's been poorly managed it doesn't really deserve the help but he also did say that if they do get the help then he wants part of that too and he's asked for 4.2 billion dollars but i believe that as it stands he, he doesn't really want them to to help virgin and he said Qantas is fine you know before all this news about the queensland government potentially stepping in to help virgin you know during the middle of the week the airline itself actually went into a trading halt on the stock exchange which is basically a suspension and a trading halt means that their shares are actually suspended from trade. So you, you can't actually go on there and, and buy or sell shares in Virgin Australia right now. Just looking at their stock uh, price, so their, their code is VAH. 
and they've been halted at a price of 8.6%. You know, they've made this decision because it's super uncertain times for them and they're likely scrambling around in the background or their executives scrambling around in the background to try and find any lifeline they can possibly get. And it's better for them to just cease trading until they come up with a solution. I mean, judging from some reports, it it might be that if they come up with a solution, not uh, when they come up with a solution because there's no guarantee that they will. I know I mentioned it in previous episode. I think it was episode four. Uh, I said that I can't see a scenario where the government lets Qantas go under, but I was unsure about Virgin. It's a bit of a different beast. You know, they actually have a lot of major international shareholders. For example, they've uh, got ownership or well, part of their ownership is from Etihad Airlines. They've got Singapore Airlines own a chunk. There's a Chinese conglomerate group called Nanshan. They actually bought into Virgin back in 2016 and they, they bought that stake off uh, Air New Zealand actually. And that was about nine, worth about 90%. Sorry, it, it was the, the value was about 19% of the entire airline back then. And then uh, the other big holder is Richard Branson's Virgin Group, which owns a stake in the airline, of course. So that's why I mean it's a, it's a bit of a different case because of all these international interests in the airline. And remember, those interests, are, they're not that likely to, to help out themselves right now. It's not, it's not like business for Singapore and Etihad Airlines or Virgin Group are, are going you know dandy right now. They're, they're not exactly in a good place either. I'm sure they're sitting there saying, well, they've got their own problems to deal with. You're saving, saving airlines right now is somewhat of a heated debate, more so in, in the US because their airlines have been crying out for help as well over the last few weeks. And even this week, some of those airlines in the US announced that they've reached agreements with the US Treasury Department for government grants to actually help them out and basically bail them out and get them through this period. And some of those airlines were American Airlines, had Delta, United, Southwest, and a couple of the smaller ones. But the criticism towards these airlines have been that it's they are not or they haven't been prepared for a downfall in the economy and were ill-equipped to to weather any kind of slowdown before the COVID-19 crisis actually started. And this criticism is actually focused on these airlines using their cash flow to actually buy shares back instead of you know creating some kind of emergency savings account for them to survive something like this. And just to clarify that, a share buyback is when a company buys shares back from the market of its own company. So it basically lowers the amount of shares on hand for that company. So it's buying them back. So a quick example of what I mean by that. So imagine I've got a company, it's called Dion Airlines and it's worth just $100 and there are 10 shares in Dion's Airlines and so they're worth $10 each. And if I came out and said, I'm going to buy five of these shares back you know, or half the shares back, there would now only be five shares, of course, in Dion Airlines circulating around. And imagine if you held one of those shares you know, your, your share in the airline has gone from $10 now to $20 and you didn't even do anything. So it's, it's awesome for you. And that, that's, that's a very simple example of what a share buyback is, but that's what I mean about, you know, this is one way that these companies have decided to give value back to the shareholders and, and you know, and taking shares off the table for the airline also means that there's less shares out there, which means that if they pay a dividend, they don't have to pay it to so many people as well. I've uh, got some statistics here which talk about or talk to why there is uh, such a debate about this. 
So this data is, is pulled from a Bloomberg article, which looked at free cash flow among the airlines I mentioned over a, basically a 10 year period up until 2019. And the definition of free cash flow is basically, it means it's the cash that a company has, or it's the cash that a company generates after accounting for you know, necessary outflows to support its actual operations. So the cost of its actual operations. So it's, it's what's left over after that. And, the, and data shows that the six big US airlines, so that's Southwest, uh, Alaska Airlines, Delta and United, American Airlines and JetBlue, they spent 96% of their free cash flow on stock buybacks over the 10 years leading up to 2019. 96% <laughs> and Boeing have done kind of similar stuff. They've spent about 74% of their free cash flow doing the exact same thing. And so these are the same companies that are, are now sort of coming to the government asking for assistance. So you can see why uh, there's also a fair bit of anger out there over their use of you know, their funds over the last decade. And maybe that's something that needs to change from a regulatory point of view. You know? So maybe, the, maybe there needs to be somewhat of a forced savings account for these kind of companies or perhaps rules in place about share buybacks only being allowed if conditions around you know, having a buffer are actually met by these airlines. Now, quickly moving on also to cruises. So last week, I actually pondered the damage to the cruise industry after all this is over. And I also thought about whether there'd actually be permanent damage as well. And literally the next day after recording that podcast, I came across this report and it cites data from a website called cruisecompete.com and, and also the Los Angeles Times. And it says that over the past month or so, there's actually been a 40% increase in reservations made for cruises in 2021. And that's compared with the year before. So, and the other, this is the other really interesting thing. So get this, only 11% of those bookings were made by people replacing cruises that have been canceled. So you might've initially thought, oh yeah, it's just people rebooking, but it's not a lot. Most of it is like brand new bookings and not cancellation uh, replacements or something like that. And furthermore, the, the research cited in the article, they polled prospective travelers and found that 75% of respondents would cruise as much or even more when they're actually able to again. Able to again. I mean, important to note that this data comes from a, like a cruise, you know, cruise-related forum. So in terms of polling data, you know, you've already got people who are already sold onto the idea of cruising enough to talk about it over the internet. So that kind of thing can skew data to be pretty favorable, but it's still interesting. And so there you have it. I'm completely wrong. I stand corrected. So perhaps there is some light at the end of the, the tunnel for cruise lines. Would I touch cruise line stocks? No, probably not. Probably not. It's not for me. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Unfortunately, no questions like we did at the end of last week. As I said at the top, please do email me if you have any questions or even discussion that you're interested in, in hearing about. There's, as cliche as it sounds, there's 100% no such thing as a silly question, so please don't be concerned about that. Have a great week. Stay healthy. Most of all, stay socially distanced. My name is Dion. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Market Pulse podcast.